This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, we are just 3 weeks away from the first anniversary of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It was expected to be a short and sharp victory for Putin, but things have turned out differently, as everybody knows. And it is now looking like being a long war. And to discuss this, we're joined by John Kampfner, one of the most distinguished British journalists of his generation. He's also an author, broadcaster and commentator, he is now an executive director at Chatham House, a leading British think tank, and his project at the moment is the UK in the World Initiative, which is very interesting indeed, given recent years and the developments in Britain. John, thank you very much for joining us. I should also mention your book, your most recent book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, and I know you have a new book about Berlin coming out. I'd like to start our conversation by asking you about what was an important breakthrough when Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, agreed to send tanks, the Leopard 2 tanks himself, and to allow countries like Poland that they had sold the tanks to, to send them also. This came at the end of a long it seems a lot of soul-searching in Germany. Can you explain what the issues were? And I should say that Schultz made it a condition that the Americans would send their US tanks, the Abrams tanks, which are a much bigger beast. Well, hi, uh, Eamon, and hi to listeners. He is a very, very curious figure. He often gets to the right decisions but he manages to get there incredibly slowly and to annoy a lot of people along the way, but that he ends up by being vindicated. And that's pretty much the summary of the tank issue and more generally about the provision of weapons from Germany to Ukraine. Now, obviously, the, the whole issue in Germany about being seen to be militaristic is a, is very well-trodden territory. Everybody knows about that, about the reluctance and about the, the whole war legacy. 
So when Schultz did his Seitenbender speech three days after Putin invaded, coming up to a year ago, that was seen as incredibly revolutionary and shocking. Then he went quiet or slow, and the Poles, the Bolts, um, a lot in Eastern Europe and Northern Europe, um, sort of encouraged by the Brits, uh, were getting really cross with Schultz. And the denouement of all of that was his hesitation on the tanks. But he did end up by not only agreeing to send 14 German tanks, but also to greenlighting the export of German tanks by other countries such as Spain and Poland and the Netherlands. And he, as you mentioned in your introduction, he brought the Americans with them on the Abraham tanks, which was his precondition. So he did well out of it, but he did Germany's reputation considerable damage. And the curiosity is he doesn't really seem to care. The issue with Germany, to say my mind, and I'm a baby boomer into my 70s, shouldn't be an issue anymore. It's, I suppose, almost ancient history. Do the German people see it differently? I'm sure they do, but how differently do they see, you know, military involvement? It depends who you ask. The polls are showing, the polls fluctuate. They're, they're showing a small but reasonably sized majority of the public is in favor of uh, military, the export of military hardware and serious military hardware to Ukraine. There is a group, they tend to be a little bit more on the left and they tend to be older. In other words, Schultz's people, uh, social democrats um, of, of the post-war era, who are reluctant to do so for two reasons. One is for, for those reasons we've just mentioned, but the other is a tradition, in the, uh, and I think a tawdry tradition in the Social Democratic Party of being close to Russia, um, and personified in Gerhard Schroeder, the former yes. chancellor, who was, was and remains pretty much put in Putin's pocket, a really shocking in, Putin in, in was my, the guest of honor, excuse me, interrupting, at his 75th birthday party. Yeah, and Putin green-lighted Schroeder adopting um, Russian children. And, no, I mean, they see each other, they talk all the time. Schroeder was all but negotiating his role, chairing the board of Nord Stream, the now defunct pipeline, uh, serving uh, gushing Russian gas um, from uh, Russia into Germany, which created the energy dependency and, to a large degree, the political dependency of Germany towards Russia. I mean, Merkel, uh, it must be said, didn't do uh, very much to stop it, even though she recognized the dangers posed by Putin. So there's a lot of catching up to do in Germany, but there's a lot of people, particularly an interesting, really interestingly, the Greens, you might think Greens equals pacifist. Well, their biggest thing is human rights yes, and human rights abuse. And they see in Putin, and completely rightly so, uh, a terrible danger to the West, but also to liberal democracy. And, and one fascinating point, when the Russians did a huge hack on the emails of the German parliament, the Bundestag, a few years ago, it was they targeted particularly MPs they didn't like, and that in very large measure was the Greens. Right. Now, John, you were bureau chief in Moscow 
for the Telegraph at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union just around 2000 and the emergence, indeed, of, of Vladimir Putin. But would you agree that that was a moment when the geopolitical facts changed irrevocably, really? And I wonder if you agree that that was such a moment. And more importantly, perhaps, given the way Russia and China have behaved recently and China is hovering around Taiwan, do you also believe that we are geopolitically now at a point where we won't be going back? Things have changed irrevocably. Yes, and probably we deluded ourselves. Um, we were guilty of that understandable human impulse towards wishful thinking for too long. Yes. Putin, I mean, the history of Russia or the Soviet Union is basically a consistent one of grievance, encirclement, and dictatorship. And there was a brief period in the 90s when it looked as if Russia could, just could, and that's when I was there and loved it there, um, be adopting a different path. That is long gone. And actually, it went a lot earlier than people realized. People confused the external look of Russia, particularly the big cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg. When, you know, when I remember people would sort of queue outside miserable shops with string bags to see if there was anything available yes. whatsoever. Um, and, you know, now Moscow is full of lavish sushi restaurants and Louis Vuitton handbags and the streets are all pristine. There are no potholes. The place looks incredibly, or at least the center, looks incredibly plush and global, Western, call it what you like, sort of Dubai meets New York, type, meets Paris. Yes type feel. And people then thought, oh, well, that they must be like us. They must have the same liberal democratic values. And of course, we know that there, what was assumed in the 90s, which was a link between free market economics and consumer durables on the one side and liberal democracy, multi-party, yes. etc., that never really existed. That was a figment of our imaginations. You can have one without the other. Russia is like that. Uh, the Gulf, in its own way, is like that. And it, if you certainly pre-pandemic, and I haven't been since the pandemic, if you walk down the center of Shanghai, it would look exactly like that as well. But the yes. politics and the international relations and the whole um, political underpinning of society is very different. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let me ask you about your present project, John, at Chatham House. The title is the UK in the World Initiative. Where does the UK stand in terms of its absence? Does it really seriously weaken Europe? And has Brexit done damage geopolitically to Europe and indeed isolated Britain in some ways? Or is the sort of the new Boris Johnson who has been to Kiev and to Washington in the last week or so and was put forward by one of the broadsheet British newspapers this week, I think, as an ideal leader for NATO. I, but there's too many questions <laughs> there. Have I confused you? Well, you, um, if, if, <laughs> if, 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 if uh, listeners could see me now, they would see me Sort of almost on the floor laughing. I mean, um, you know, I mean, of all the ridiculous British hubris, nonsense, uh, delusional, I mean, you know, I could come up with ever more colorful um, and possibly expletive ridden words to uh, summarize all of this. I mean, when President Macron declared NATO to be brain dead. Oh my God, if Johnson was anywhere close to it, that would absolutely confirm <laughs> confirm that view. Look, and there are some really interesting candidates uh, to be, I mean, Jens Stoltenberg, who was supposed to be standing down, and then it was agreed that he should stay on because of the war. He's supposed to stand down again this autumn. It's possible that he may stay on again another year. But even if he didn't, there are some really interesting candidates from a across Europe, maybe another time we can talk about who they are. Yes. Now, of course, Johnson, to give him his credit, and yes. it's the one and only thing that I would be prepared to say he has been anything but a buffoon and a humiliation for Britain. And it's a significant thing. And yes. it is right that, uh, and, it, and it's a curious one for people like me who just regard Johnson as the personification of everything that has gone wrong with Britain. Um, to then turn around and say, well, at the same time, on this absolutely crucial issue, he was resolute earlier, is is sort of logically and in some ways emotionally problematic. But that is the situation. He 
did do, uh, he sensed the danger, whatever his motivation was. I think it was a sort of his usual hand-flapping, Churchillian, uh, delusional dreams. But nonetheless, whatever his motivation, he did see much earlier than others not so much the danger posed by Russia, because you know he was absolutely in hot with Russian oligarchs, as as yes. many conservative politicians are. But the danger faced by Ukraine, and in that respect, he not only uh, the Brits were early on training Ukrainians, but also on arming Ukrainians, yes. but also on trying to galvanise the rest of Europe, and they continue to be in in that position. But the idea that he, you know, he made such a mess of the UK um, in every respect. I was I was chairing an event last night at Chatham House with Michel Barnier's uh, former chief negotiator on yes. Brexit, and he just <laughs> discussed. We weren't talking about the principles, the rights and wrongs of Brexit. We were just talking about at every step of the way the dog's breakfast the Brits made of the negotiation. Lord Frost uh, springs to mind. Lord Frost springs. <laughs> you know, I mean, the absolute. And he was saying, uh, Stefan Derek, the guy uh, I was interviewing, was saying, actually, from an EU perspective, when we scenario planned in 2016, uh, from our, the EU's perspective, how well or badly the negotiations could go, could go. They could not have gone better for us because basically the Brits screwed up at every uh, level and now we still have the on, uh, ongoing uh, and incredibly problematic impasse on the Northern Ireland Protocol. But more generally, you just look at the... Um, uh, look at the figures now. The IMF forecasts at the start of this week that Britain's economy is the worst... Um, in uh, any developed country, performing even worse now than Russia's. Yes. I mean, that is quite an astonishing turn of event. And not all of it, but a very large proportion of that is due to Brexit. Now, at this time, I want to go back to the geopolitical idea and where we the world is now and where it's likely to go to. And in that context, Britain being out of Europe, in my view, is a bad thing. For the very reason you stated, they gave leadership. Johnson was quick out of the traps. They sent money. They sent arms. No hesitation at all, and he has to be credited for that. In a wider sense, Britain is better if it's part of Europe, and Europe is much stronger if they have Britain in it. For one thing, Britain has a nuclear capacity. For another, it has people like Johnson. It has a sense of itself that it has a place in standing up to the Putins and the Xi's of the world. I mean, as the um, discussion that I mentioned uh, developed yesterday, the, um, the, the, there is a misconception in Britain about the effects of Brexit on Europe. Um, Europeans have got over Brexit insofar as they saw it as anything but a um, uh, tragic comic sideshow, yes. they've got over Britain leaving a long time ago. Um, and in some ways, a lot of European cohesion, if you think of the huge injection of credit into the system that was agreed to cope with the pandemic... Um, all these sorts of things, at every step of the way, any major decision, the Brits would always cause trouble. 
um, and would always object. The absence of Britain from the EU discussion has actually made the uh, workings of the organization easier. In some ways, the more free market, less statist countries, thinking of Germany, the Netherlands, the uh, Nordics, um, and others do miss Britain because it is becoming uh, the, the uh, center of power is is shifting in Europe. But if we think now about how the EU will at some point, or probably take many, many years, bring in Ukraine, that will be the single biggest change to the EU, bigger than, than Brexit. Now, the Brits, or at least half of the Brits, or perhaps now more than half of the Brits, have not got over Brexit. And the, the um, I think Belgian, 67% of Britons would go back in. I saw a poll and 39% um, wouldn't. Maybe that's well, misleading. You'd know better than I. That poll, if I recall rightly, Emma, maybe you saw a different one. But the, the current thing at the moment is, in answering the question, has Brexit been a net benefit or disbenefit to Britain? And there is now a consensus, not a huge one, but a growing one, that it's been bad, somewhere between a little bit bad and a disaster yes. for Britain. So the minority now still think, oh, well done, we've done well. But it's a different question would be, and do you want to go back? Because do you want to go back presupposes all kinds of things. A, does Europe want us back? B, on what terms would Europe have us back, even if they did want us back? And Britain would not enjoy any of the opt-outs that it had before, and it would have to apply candidate status, and it would just be extraordinary. And given that Brexit has preoccupied and dominated so much of the political space, well, and Europe for pre-referendum and beyond, would the next generation of British politicians um, Starmer and his successors really want to be weighed down in interminable further negotiations with the EU. I think that's unlikely, but never say never. But I do think the I think where the action is going to be is finding mechanisms for a far more mature and closer relationship with the with the EU. Now, where do you see this invasion, this violence, this horror show taking us, John? And also, at the same time, the Chinese becoming more obviously hostile to Taiwan, it seems almost inevitable that they will do something about that. Perhaps that's not the case. But the world, has it changed fundamentally? And when people say, for example, and many people have said it, Putin must not be allowed to win. The big, well, the the bigger tendency as uh, various uh, Freedom House, for example, the American not-for-profit that tracks uh, the progress or the state of democracy and freedoms and human rights around the world, has been charting uh, what has come to be called the democratic recession um for quite some time and depending on your matrix the peak of countries that were adhering to to a greater or lesser extent the values and norms that irish british and other countries do 
peaked either around 2008, 2010, 2012, right. and it's been going downhill ever since. And obviously, we had the great lurches of Brexit, of Trump, the possibility of Marine Le Pen, the advent of Orban, Poland, yes. and um, you know, and not to mention you know the uh, very quick demise of the so-called Arab Spring. Um, I was uh, reading only a couple of days ago that bin Salman in in Saudi, you know, uh, the West's supposed best friend, who you know chopped up Khashoggi, the journalist, or had yes. him chopped up, and and uh, the rate of executions, according to the Times in London, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, is greater now than it's been for many years. So the direction in many countries is going the wrong way. Yes. I would argue that Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the possibility, I would put it no stronger than possibility, of China invading Taiwan, uh, it's more likely they will be pushing for, you know, they will be doing trade blockades and all kinds of other things. Um, but they are the dramatic and highly dangerous manifestations of a longer-term and more deep-rooted problem, which has been the, uh, as I say, the move away against democracy and towards authoritarian and, and populism, yes. including in countries uh, such as my own and all kinds of other countries, uh, the United States and the others, Trump's France. The Trump presidency might have given us a little whiff of what could be to come if the United States decides to be isolationist in this dangerous world. We're in big trouble, aren't we, John? I mean, Trump, uh, will Trump win next time? He's no. never say never. He started early. He doesn't look the piece. Um, we never did. But I, I, you just slightly feel that it's it's gone for him. But that's the, the interesting thing. Who will take on the mantle Yes. Of the American isolationist, um, socially conservative far right that Trump garnered for himself. Whoever does it, the chances are they will do it far more smartly. Yeah, Ron DeSantis is the name yeah. that keeps popping up, and he is dangerous but smart, I'm told. That's right. And so if you look at the US Republican Party and you look at the British Conservative Party, the honorable tradition of sort of one nation, center right, um, slightly socially conservative, slightly, you know, free market, traditionalist politics that I don't subscribe to, but I have great respect for, that's gone. They have been shelled out. Yes. The decent Tories have gone they and have, the decent yes. Republicans have gone. Yes. Those parties have become hard right parties. Yes. They've been hollowed um, out. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the problem. That is the problem we uh you know, we all face look at France, you know, more than sixty percent of voters have now opted for parties of the far right or far left. And so it's a far if if we in the West are not are doing enough wrong that makes people disillusioned with democracy. How on earth do we think that people in countries like Russia and China with very little tradition, if any, of that or experience of it will ever possibly adopt it when we are making such an absolute uh, disaster of it ourselves? 
Right, just one final question about the importance, therefore, and I agree with everything you said just then, of the European Union or the irrelevance of it. It's a really good question. I would say in some ways it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, or I wouldn't say it's irrelevant, but um, so on the military security piece, it um, or space, I should say, um, it is still relatively insignificant. I mean, you know, NATO is there to do that work for it. Um, but that said, I think Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel and others have done a pretty good job over the last year with the um, Ukraine war being very closely aligned to NATO. The fact that Sweden and Finland are now uh, applying yes. uh, for NATO uh, uh, membership and Turkey may be trying to scupper it. Still, so Europe is Europe is what it is. It's a big trade block. It's a wonderful philosophical concept too for people like me particularly uh well i mean i've got german citizenship now and it means a lot to me because yes. it makes me feel i am part of europe just as you are yes. but just as the vast majority of brits sadly are not and that matters but if you look at the world now and the focus the almost exclusive focus of the united states on china as a threat yes they simply want europe finally after all these years and you can understand why they want you know that they're right in this they want europe to look after itself europe is incredibly wealthy and now pretty cohesive why should it need to rely on the americans and others to defend it against russian or other threats so there's a lot of work europe needs to do in many ways to grow up right john it's fascinating to talk to you and we're very grateful to you indeed that's john kampfner one of the very best British journalists and his book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, was acclaimed when it was published two years ago now and his new book on Berlin will be out soon. Thank you very much to John, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.